This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. The Supreme Court gears up for the first Monday in October, and it's the first time that they will have been back in the courtroom since March of 2020. They'll hear oral argument in some really interesting cases involving uh, the Boston Marathon bomber, among other things. But there's a lot of Supreme Court news that is happening outside of the courtroom. And so joining me to talk about all of this is SCOTUS Blog's media editor, Katie Barlow. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me join. Yeah, it's always great to have you with us. So we've so, got a lot to talk about, yes. Yes, and I really want to start with what I think is maybe my favorite Art Lean banner that he has done for us, which is the justices kind of getting back to school to go back to the courtroom for the first time in 18 months. Uh, this is a big deal. There's definitely a back to school feeling about it, uh, but you will actually get to go back to the courtroom pending any changes to COVID policy or any disruptions from COVID. So how does it feel? Does it feel like going back to school? It does. It's very exciting. Uh, you know, I get all my pens and notebooks. I did get used to taking notes during the telephone arguments on my laptop. So I think I'm going to have to sort of recondition my hand, hand to take notes for a couple of hours again, but, uh, and get used to wearing real shoes. But it, but it's exciting to see my colleagues in the press room and to see the justices in action in the traditional format. You know, I, I was not, you know, as staunchly opposed to the seriatim questioning as some of my colleagues, particularly Lyle Deniston, who's been a guest on the podcast, was. But I, I certainly prefer the sort of hot bench format. And you know, as far as we know, it's. They're going to be back on the bench on Monday. So obviously COVID can dramatically change the landscape quickly. As we learned from the news on Friday, that in fact, the, the last business day before the court was to take the bench once more for the first time in 18 months, Justice Brett Kavanaugh tested positive for COVID. We know he was with the justices on Monday of last week for the long conference, but all of the justices tested negative uh, and even his family members haven't tested positive. So it seems to be a limited breakthrough case. Of course, he's back vaccinated. We learned from the court he's been vaccinated since January, but it is just a reminder of the world that we live in now. And so um, it's going to be uh, an odd bench by being an even bench, at least until Justice Kavanaugh is able to recover. Um, but are you anticipating any changes or any quick adaptations or anything that COVID is going to do? I feel like last year we were talking about an October surprise uh, in the election. And this year, it, it feels like on we got an October surprise on day one with the Supreme Court with this uh, positive test. That's right. And usually it feels like mornings at this, when you cover the Supreme Court, the mornings tend to be relatively quiet. The court doesn't really get going. You don't usually get press releases or orders until later in the day. But, you know, a little before nine, uh, I, I imagine because Justice Amy Coney Barrett's investiture was scheduled for 10 a.m. Friday morning. She's obviously been on the court for a long time now, almost a year. 
uh, but the justice the justices have a formal investiture ceremony after they're sworn in and the official purpose of that is to present the commission signed by the president to the court and then for the new justice to take the official uh, judicial oath the new justice sits in chief Ju chief justice john marshall's chair uh, in the well of the supreme court before he or she ascends to the bench it, it's also just an opportunity to gather family and friends and sort of celebrate the occasion and they weren't able to do that presumably because of COVID-19 and so they finally were able to do that on Friday it was a beautiful day in Washington DC on Friday um, but Justice Kavanaugh as you said was tested for, for COVID-19 on Thursday and they wanted to announce that before the investiture because when the justices took the bench he wasn't there so yes yeah, so I think with COVID, we're, we're kind of sailing in uncharted waters right now. And this was certainly a, a big surprise, as you said, because the justices are all fully vaccinated. They have been for some time now. Uh, but you know, who knows what else is going to happen? The justices also released earlier uh, in the week on Monday, I believe, sort of a set of protocols for lawyers who are going to be arguing before the Supreme Court. And so if you are going to be arguing before the Supreme Court or your co-counsel to a lawyer who's going to be arguing before the Supreme Court, you've got to go and get tested for COVID-19 the day before your oral argument. Um, and a little side note, if, if you happen to test positive for COVID-19, the court still is, is expecting you to argue by telephone right so hopefully you will be like justice kavanaugh and have no symptoms if you test for uh, test positive and have an oral argument the next day right so far justice kavanaugh has not experienced symptoms symptoms of course we wish him a speedy recovery um, and i would note that he was running an eight minute mile the day before he tested positive for COVID uh, in an annual Capitol Hill race. So uh, the no symptoms piece seems to be um, true. So, yeah, so it was interesting actually looking at the uh, results of that case, uh, both Brian Fletcher, the acting solicitor general and Elizabeth Lager, the nominee to be the permanent solicitor general also ran in that race and did very well as did my colleague, Mark Sherman of the Associated Press. A very Washington race that was, a bit of navel gazing. All right, so putting aside that piece of news, as you said, it was still an incredibly news heavy week. We got uh, grants from the Long Conference, several new cases uh, that were granted last week. What did we get? So we got five cases altogether. Uh, we probably the one of the headliners was a campaign finance case involving the 2018 Senate campaign of Senator Ted Cruz. Uh, some of our listeners rem may remember that at the time it was the most expensive Senate race in history. And this is the Senator's challenge to uh, some fairly complicated uh, provisions in campaign finance law involving loan repayment, sort of when and how you can repay loans that a candidate makes to his or her own campaign. Uh, there's a, also a very interesting case involving the city of Boston and its 
rejection of an application by a Christian group to fly a flag at City Hall when it had given permission to various other groups to fly their flag, including a, you know, the Turkish flag, a Boston Pride flag, uh, a flag commemorating Juneteenth. So we're returning to the idea of religion in public spaces. So it was not, it was not a, you know, the, the long conference, the justices heard at the long conference, the, the conference that the justices held on the Monday before the first Monday in October, they consider well over a thousand petitions for review because it's all of the petitions that have piled up since the last regularly scheduled conference, which in this case was the end of June or beginning of July. And they added only five new cases to their docket, uh, at least in this initial set of orders. So the court will the following week issue another set of orders denying in all likelihood hundreds over a thousand cases from that conference. The really interesting thing will be to see whether we get any summary opinions or any cases that are relisted for consideration at a future conference, because there were certainly a lot of interesting cases at that conference that the justices haven't acted on yet. I'm interested in both of the cases you mentioned from uh, the long conference grants, in particular, the Boston flag case and the conversation about religion in public spaces. And that brings me to my next topic with you. Um, and, and one of the justices who has written on this extensively, who has opinions about it, certainly uh, gave a speech this week, Justice Alito. And that was actually uh, the person who introduced him, um, brought that point up in the introduction uh, about the justices writing on religion um, and, and religious freedom. And he was the latest in a series of speeches and conversations that the justices have held publicly and not so publicly about how the media has been discussing the court and some of the most prominent criticisms of the court. We talked uh, last time about Justice Barrett's speech and hers was not live streamed, but we've also seen Justice Thomas give a speech um, echoing similar sentiments that was live streamed. Justice Breyer on his book tour has said a number of similar things. In fact, Justice Alito quoted from Justice Breyer's new book. Um, and Justice Sotomayor also spoke not publicly, I believe, um, or at least I haven't seen a recording of it uh, before the ABA. So there have been a few think pieces zooming out and looking at this big picture of what the justices have been consistently saying. And actually, uh, at least one of the pieces in CNN by Joan Biskupic was talking about um, how unique it is that all of them send to, seem to be sending this consistent message and in fact are appear to be angry. So I'm just curious if you had any thoughts about you know all of these speeches leading up to the beginning of what will be a dynamite term no matter what. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about the Justice Alito speech in particular. And first of all, it, you know, it was at Notre Dame Law School on Thursday, I believe. You know, the press was invited on Tuesday afternoon. You know, they, they initially had not planned to live stream it, and which is kind of ironic because the, the theme of his speech was the emergency docket, uh, which 
many people also refer to as the shadow docket. So the idea that a sitting Supreme Court justice was going to talk about the shadow docket, but it was not going to be publicly accessible was a, was a little ironic uh, to many of us. Um, but I think there was some pushback uh, to the idea that it wasn't going to be live streamed. And so after a day or so, I, I think people had made plans to actually go and, and try and get into the speech because it seemed like it was on an important topic. Notre Dame agreed to live stream it, um, but it was a one-time only ticket because now the video has been scrubbed from the internet. Um, I also find it interesting that uh, the title, that, that there's some rebranding going on, that they are not calling it the shadow docket, that they are calling it the emergency docket. And the term the shadow docket was not actually something that was you know, cooked up in some sort of leftist student or law professor group. It's actually a term that was coined by Will Bode, uh, a law professor at the University of Chicago who clerked for John Roberts. So, you know, not exactly a, a leftist law professor. You know, I think that the justices, I think that they are all very sensitive to criticism right now uh, after the, the criticism that they've seen and received over the summer. And it's interesting because the, the summertime traditionally has been a time when the justices can sort of retreat. You know, they go off to teach in law schools uh, in Europe, or if you're Justice Thomas, they get in their RVs and drive around the country somewhat anonymously. Um, but they have had to grapple with some of these really high profile cases like the Texas SB 8 uh, abortion bill and the CDC eviction moratorium and then the Texas case involving the inmate who wanted to have his spiritual advisor uh, in the room praying and putting his hands on him. It was sort of the, another one of the shadow docket cases that came to them. And they, you know, they didn't really get a break from the court or from each other. And that's actually a, a dynamic that I'm going to be really interested to see when they go back to the courtroom. You know, are are, are they sort of instantly tense? Uh, you, you always, I always had the sense over the course of a term that by the end of the term, they were all ready for a break from each other. And are they going to sort of start not very well rested? You know, is this kind of back to school to them, or is it sort of more of the same? You know, as far as the the, the various speeches go, you know, one thing that one thing that has jumped out at me, particularly in the Alito speech, is that I also feel like the justices are sometimes a little bit confused about what exactly the media is. There's a lot of criticism of the press, um, but you know, Justice Alito pointed at a couple of specific examples. You know, Steve Laddick at the University of Texas, Mark Tushnet at Harvard, are very smart people who have been critical of the court. Steve, you know, in a couple of different media, Mark Tushnet on a blog, but they're not reporters. And, you know, I, I think that sometimes that line is, is blurred for them. And I've seen that with, with other justices. You know, just because something is, is on Twitter and is critical of the court uh, doesn't mean that it's the press. Um, another sort of reaction that I've, I've had, you know, Justice Barrett talked about a, a common complaint from members of the court is that the, the reporters, and, and here I do think they mean reporters, but sometimes it, it may be 
know, Justice Barrett referred to hot takes on Twitter, sort of get get the substance of their decisions wrong, or you know, that's not it's insufficiently nuanced. Um, you know, they have a way to get their message directly to the people when they issue an opinion. They could make the audio or the video of their opinion announcements available, um, and they have declined to do that. And not only have they declined to do that um, by making the opinion announcements less accessible than oral arguments, but really substantially less accessible. The opinion announcement audio is not available for months after uh, the opinions are released. So, you know, I have a lot of thoughts, uh, not necessarily super coherent ones, but, but those are my initial ones. It's incredibly coherent. And that was one of the points that I perhaps inarticulately tried to include in my piece about Justice Barrett's speech, which is if the criticism is that the press is a problematic middleman and they are not interpreting correctly, then please speak directly to the people. That would be welcomed by all members if for one reason, because that's not a telephone chain, but for two, the American public, if they want to check back on how the media is covering it, they can go to the source and having video and audio access. I, I know, of course, they can read the opinions, but in my humble opinion, those are less accessible sometimes than watching the justices talk about it and having video and audio access of um, talking about the opinions and the release of the opinions and at least that part of the process. So if the press as a middleman is doing a bad job interpreting, do things like Justice Alito did, open it up to a live stream and let everyone talk about it. And there was some criticism or discussion on Twitter after Justice Alito spoke about whether um, it was a good thing that he spoke publicly about that. And even those who have been critical of the court and who have been critical of the shadow docket said, it is always a good thing when the justices speak publicly like that, because it allows us to hear them, but it also allows us to intelligently respond to what they're saying. And by us, I mean, those members uh, of the academia and the, the folks that Justice Alito mentioned in that speech who do critically comment on the court and who certainly know way more about it than I do, um, but it gives them an opportunity to respond. And it's a part of this conversation, um, which is important that we have. And I say that because I'm also nerding out at the moment, reading Akhil Amar's book about our constitutional conversation between 1760 and 1840. Um, oh, that was the one Lyle recommended. He did. I'm literally, he said, it's going to take you all summer and I'm well past the summer and I'm still working my way through the 700 page tome. Um, but it's all about how the country built the constitution and the conversation we had throughout the colonies and who participated in the conversation and the back and forth. And anytime we can have more of a back and forth, of course, as a member of the press, I'm biased in this way, but I think that that is beneficial. And that's why I think Justice Alito's decision, and I understand it to be his decision because it was his decision not to allow live streaming, um, his decision to allow live streaming was to all of our benefit. And I think I know that they are worried about sort of people taking video clips out of context and putting them on the Colbert show or Saturday Night Live. But I really think that putting live video out there will show them, you know, actually to look pretty good, you know, that they come prepared 
for oral arguments and ask questions. And as they like to remind us, you know, a lot of these cases that they deal with uh, don't deal with you know, religion and abortion and guns. You know, we are talking about employee benefits and tax and you know, I'm trying to think of some of the other cases that they took uh, taxes and the like, you know, these cases that may well lead to unanimous opinions that aren't particularly ideological to show that this is also the, the, the work that the court that the court does. You know, I, I also think you know, returning back to the, the Alito speech, it, when when the justices are talking about the criticism of the shadow docket, I think that there are two kinds of criticism of the shadow docket. You know, I think for some people, there are, there are critics of the shadow docket who don't like the process and they don't like the outcome that, that, that the court has reached in a lot of these cases. But then there are people who genuinely, and, and I think the reporters fall into this, who have criticisms of the process of the transparency issues. And I think when you conflate those two, um, you're, you're sort of selling things short. Well put. I agree. All right. So that is a lot of the news that has happened with the court. But now let's turn to back to school. October has a full calendar. What can we look forward to in October? You talked about uh, the Boston Marathon bomber case, but that's not the only one. And I don't want to just pick the headlines here. Are there any sleepers in October? So there's a really interesting case in what my kids would call an abortion adjacent case, a case called Cameron versus EMW Women's Surgical Center. And so it, the dispute arises from a Kentucky law that prohibits the use of what's known as the dilation and evacuation method, which is a common method to end the pregnancy during the second trimester. But what it boils down to is who gets to, def as it comes to the court, is who gets to defend a state's law, particularly when you've got divided government and you've got changes in the governor's mansion during litigation. So in Kentucky, over the arc of the litigation, you had a Republican governor um, and then it switched to a Democratic governor. Um, at, at one point, the state's health secretary, after the state switched to a Democratic governor, the state's health secretary told the Court of Appeals it wasn't going to pursue any further appeals after the Court of Appeals invalidated the law. And so the question is, can the state's Republican attorney general intervene to defend the law instead? Kind of a little sort of factoid, uh, the state's Republican attorney general is, is a man named Daniel, Daniel Cameron, who was on former President Donald Trump's list of potential Supreme Court nominees that he released, released during the 2020 campaign. So that case, along with the Boston Marathon bomber case, the United States versus Tsarnaev, uh, those are both going to be argued in the second week of the October sitting. And one final point that you actually pointed out on Twitter is the October hearing list has something else noteworthy about it besides the cases that are on it. What is it? That's right. So for some time now, uh, several people, including including me, have been trying to track 
the number of women arguing at the Supreme Court. And there are 20 lawyers arguing during the October session, and seven of them are women, which is pretty good. You know, it, it's it is not it's not ideal that you know there was the, the line by justice ginsburg when, when she was asked how many women on the supreme court would be enough and her response was well when there are nine um yeah but there have been years in the not too distant past in which we made it until february before there was a woman arguing from private practice because the u.s solicitor general's office uh to be fair does a great job getting women uh, advocates up before the court, and there are two from the Solicitor General's office arguing arguing in October, but there are five others. Um, and so it's really great to have women from, you know, from the Solicitor General's office, from the uh, Michigan Solicitor General's office, from private practice, from public interest groups, like the ACLU um, arguing before the court. And the other great thing is that there are, uh, as far as I can tell, three of them are arguing for the first time. So that means that hopefully they will be back again soon. Seven is pretty good, I'll say. Pretty good. Almost uh, there. <laughs> uh, it's a, a funny story. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was talking to my daughter's brownie troop about the Supreme Court as part of their badge um in government or something like that and you know, I, I so i grew up i was 10 when justice justice o'connor was nominated to the supreme court uh, as the first woman so i said well you know there are nine justices on the supreme court and three of them are women because someone who remembers when the first woman was nominated three is a lot of progress um, and the room of nine and 10 year old girls erupted in horror. They said, that's not fair. That's excellent. I hope they carry that with them for the rest of their lives. Yeah. All right. Well, we're looking forward to October and all of the news that will happen between now and the next episode. There's been enough. Not too much news. <laughs> It's not like last October, at least there's that for now. Thank you, Amy. We always learn something from you. Thank you, Katie. Great to talk to you. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to our production team, Katie Barlow, Angie Goh, and James Ramoser.